the views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. Welcome to TMI with Aldous Tyler for Friday, June 11th, 2021. Happy Pride Month, everybody. Um, and one of the things that happens an awful lot around this time of year is you see a lot of rainbows like everywhere. Uh, companies, of course, wanting to attract uh dollars from the lgbtq plus community uh puts rainbows on everything and you know i mean let's face it it's it's uh not an unwise move when it comes to marketing you want to make sure that you uh show yourself to be friendly to as many people as possible if you're selling your product but you know it's the lack of sincerity is palpable obviously uh, to many people um I mean, not Chick-fil-A, mind you. They, <laughs> you. You won't find any pride flags at Chick-fil-A, and that's okay. At least they're being honest about the fact that they have absolutely horrible anti-gay, homophobic policies, uh, procedures, and frankly, donations uh, to just about any and all hate groups that they can get their hands on when it comes to uh, the LGBTQ plus movement. However, however, that's enough of that. Um after all, it's not just corporations putting rainbows on everything. Frankly, uh, communities are putting rainbows up. But in their case, it's not that they, you know, want to sell you stuff and take your money. It's that they actually want to have representation of everybody within their community. They want to celebrate pride for what pride is supposed to be celebrated for. Uh, Jacksonville, Florida went and uh, put rainbow lighting on the Acosta Bridge. It was beautiful. Uh, if you can find uh, photographs of it, please do so. Uh, Florida Times Union um, has a, a couple articles that features the pictures of it. But again, uh, the Jacksonville Transportation Authority put that rainbow lighting up. It was supposed to last the entire week, but the Florida Department of Transportation, the state, came down and ordered the removal of the rainbow lighting. Um, it said that the FDOT, the Florida Department of Transportation, informed the Jacksonville Transportation Authority that the scheduled color scheme for the Acosta Bridge is out of compliance with the existing permit. 
So um, the Jacksonville Transportation Authority had to apply uh, or comply, I should say, accordingly. Um, by late Tuesday, the lights were just a standard blue all the way across. The multicolored lights were intended to glow all week, like I said, in, in honor of Pride Month. Um, and uh, they, these lights have been changed on this bridge to honor everything from Breast Cancer Awareness Month to the home game weekends for the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars. Now, the state of Florida, you know, the Florida Department of Transportation is, of course, trying to deflect any and all blame. There's like, oh, we, we will have to refer you to the owning and operating agency that has a permit for those lights. That's the Jacksonville Transportation Authority. They, they have to have a permit for those lights. It's my understanding a certain color palette's available on that permit, but specific questions about that permit light, you, you, you're going to have to talk to them. Yeah, whatever. The last week, Florida's Department of Transportation denied a request to light Sarasota's John Ringling Causeway Bridge with rainbow lights to celebrate Pride Month as well, by the way. So, <laughs> there's good reason why we still need Pride. But why I say still is because it has its roots in a history that's 50 years old. What is Pride about? Well, in an abstract level, of course, pride, in the case of LGBTQ+, pride is about not only celebrating accomplishments, but showing that, you know what, we're not going away. That those of us who fit in the alphabet that has now been assigned uh, to uh, the community are human beings, just like anybody else. So we're proud to be here. We're not leaving. We're not ashamed of who we are. And so there's that. That's the abstract. But there is a definite reason as to why Pride Month is June. That's because in the early hours of Saturday the 28th, of June in 1969, you had eight officers from the New York Police Department who entered the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village, New York City. Again, the early hours of the Saturday, the 20th of June there. They didn't realize they were going to make history doing so. They were conducting another shakedown raid, as the patrons of the Stonewall Inn would call it, and the patrons weren't having it that night. The bar was a well-known hangout for the city's fledgling gay community, an easy mark for corrupt officers. Um, dubbed either Lily Law or Betty Badge by their prey, these officers could pick up a weekly payoff from the owners, the Genovese crime family, in exchange for turning a blind eye to its serving drinks without a liquor license and not leaking the names of influential customers to the press. The envelope of cash they pocketed in return for their compliance was known as Gayola, as in payola with the word gay. The Stonewall Inn had once been a stable back in the day. It had no running water to wash its glasses, no fire exit, and the toilets frequently broke. But it was a haven for the city's outsiders, a sanctuary from a conservative state that considered their very existence 
a threat to public decency and national security, and where dancing was permitted for a $3 entrance fee. Now, that might not sound like too much to you, but remember, 1969. Uh, If you're going to uh, go forward from there, consider that roughly like a uh, $15 to $20 cover, cover charge now. Now, the clientele was very mixed race, but primarily composed of um, gay men, lesbians. Um, There were some homeless teens sleeping rough in nearby Christopher Park, who often visited, uh, drawn by the inclusive party atmosphere within its walls that were all painted black. Now, the cops usually tipped off the bar before carrying out one of its semi-regular raids, but this time hadn't. Now, one theory was that the Stonewall Inn's mafia owners had begun extorting rich customers, particularly Wall Street traders, realizing there was more money to be made from selling their silence than mixing drinks. Doing so, the theory goes, estranged the authorities from their kickbacks, prompting them to shut down the bar permanently in revenge. Now, the plainclothes team of of officers walked in on a crowded dance floor of some over 200 you know, revelers on that really just hot summer night. Um, and it happened to follow the day that the uh, star of musicals and gay icon Judy Garland had been laid to rest. So let me just make sure we're painting the picture properly here. The denizens of the Stonewall Inn were already deeply upset and grieving over Judy Garland's passing when this shakedown upon shakedown upon shakedown finally happened. And um, so the officers walked in and barred the doors. But then they attempted to line up and frisk the patrons that they intended to take into custody. And they met with more resistance than, you know, they ever had before. In fact, now I'm going to put this... uh, Straight for you here. <laughs> Pardon the pun. Um, the first punch thrown by any of the members at uh, any of the patrons that night at the Stonewall Inn was a, uh, a brave woman of color, a, a butch lesbian by the name of Stormy Delivery. Um, and uh, for her troubles, she was uh, hit on the head with a billy club and handcuffed. And um, as they were finally getting the wagon there and badly mistreating the people they'd been handcuffing, she turned to the 200 plus people there and shouted out, why don't you do something? That's when the scene exploded. Um, again, the, the Stonewall's customers, they were cornered. They'd simply had enough of being persecuted. They refused to hand over their ID cards or cooperate with officers, uh, seeking to verify the gender of cross-dressers, which, of course, is in- intrusive and dehumanizing. They're basically like, well, we, we need to prove what gender you are. Oh, really? Now... Onlookers began to chant gay power and saying, we shall overcome. They, you know, booed when an officer shoved a transvestite and cheered when he was hit in the face with a person retaliation. And 
once Stormy had given her call to action, why don't you do something? The scene was, like I say, just completely erupted. Um, activists, um, trans women of color, um, were among the first to throw bottles at the police before being joined by others throwing pennies, beer cans. What followed was a 45-minute battle on melee, the, the crowd taking on the New York Police Department with rubbish bins, flaming garbage, cobblestones and bricks from neighboring construction sites. The cops, along with folk singer Dave Van Ronk and village voice writer Howard Smith, who'd both been compelled to investigate the chaos, barricaded themselves inside the stone wall for their own safety, covering the windows with plywood planks only for the doors to be bashed in with a parking meter that had been torn out of the pavement to be used as an impromptu battering ram. As the protesters broke in, and the bar top was set on fire with lighter fluid, a tactical police, forge, tactical police force unit arrived to help free their colleagues. They were greeted by a chorus line, its participants linking arms and kicking their legs in the air, just like you, you know, would see in Paris with the can-can dancers. When order was finally restored in the early hours of the morning, the Stonewall Inn had been completely trashed, its washroom, mirrors, jukeboxes, cigarette machines all destroyed. Thirteen people were arrested, four officers treated for injuries, many others hospitalized. The riot resumed the following evening and for several nights after, by which point the bar had already become a, a focal point for anti-police unrest, its walls dabbed with graffiti declaring drag power, and they invaded our rights. These riots included a smashing of a police car windshield. Um, thousands took to the streets of Greenwich Village in a defiant mood, rocking cars, rallying against a humiliated New York Police Department. Their point had been well and truly made. As beat poet Allen Ginsberg put it, gay power isn't that great. It's about time we did something to assert ourselves. You know, the guys there were so beautiful. They'd lost that wounded look that gay men all had 10 years ago. In Stonewall's immediate aftermath, the Gay Liberation Front and the less confrontational, more orderly Gay Activists Alliance were soon formed to organize rights activism while the newspapers Gay Come Out and Gay Power entered publication preaching empowerment. On the one-year anniversary of the riots, marchers coordinated by activist Brenda Howard and others gathered in Manhattan and at parallel events in Chicago and Los Angeles to celebrate Christopher Street Liberation Day, honoring the Stonewall riots and what had quickly become recognized as a watershed moment in LGBTQ plus rights. Gay pride was born, with more and more cities across the world staging their own carnivals and street parades to champion gay, lesbian, and trans culture. It took another 30 years before a U.S. president, in that case Bill Clinton, officially declared June Gay and Lesbian Pride Month. Fellow Democrat Barack Obama extended that title to the more inclusive Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Pride Month in 2009. The Stonewall riots were both a spontaneous outburst of frustration and anger at the oppression of LGBTQ plus people and very much 
a product of their moment. One of the most turbulent decades in American history, the 1960s, had begun with a rush of counterculture optimism, but was spiraling towards disillusionment by its close after the assassination of John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Malcolm X, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and the ever more futile sacrifice of young American life in an unwinnable Vietnam War. The hippie dream would die with Charles Manson, and Altamont and the righteous anger of the Black Panthers seemed like the only means left open for those determined to achieve the goals of the civil rights movement and bring about meaningful social reform. The Stonewall fight back may have been chaotic, but it was also exactly the sort of radical, authentic, provocative eruption the world needed to wake up to the rights and fundamental human dignity of citizens in America and beyond who had suffered in the shadows for far, far too long. In conclusion to the history of Pride, I want to go back to Stormy Delivery. I want to give you a little bit more background on her. She was born to an African-American mother and a white father in the 1920s. She performed as a drag king, as it was known, and was one of several butch lesbians that fought against the police on the night of the riots. When Stormy threw that very first punch that night, it was in self-defense. Stormy recounted, the cop hit me, I hit him back. Now, Stormy Delarvery uh, never sought to take credit for spurring a historical movement, but many recount her call to arms that the powerful words she shouted with all her might that incited the Stonewall riots. Why don't you do something? Stormy DeLarvery served the lesbian community for decades as a volunteer street patrol worker. What that meant was that she patrolled the lesbian bars to keep what she lovingly referred to as her baby girls safe. She was androgynous, tall, dark, handsome, and legally armed. She did this all the way up until she was 80-something years old, retiring in the early 2000s. In 2017 now, there are less than a handful of lesbian bars remaining in the U.S. The last remaining lesbian bar in San Francisco, called the Lexington Club, closed its doors in 2015. But nonetheless, Stormy is fondly remembered as a gay superhero, so to speak, a fearless protector of the lesbian spaces that have all but gone extinct. She died in her sleep in Brooklyn, May 24th, 2014. And um, I want to put a spotlight on her because there are a number of different um, historical recounts of the riots. But I felt that Stormy really needed to have her place highlighted because she'd been um, taken out of that place of prominence. And uh, I felt it only fair to make sure that we knew exactly who we had to thank for the fact that we now are taken seriously. Those of us who are lesbian, gay, or like myself, bisexual, um, transgender, queer, any of the other letters that fit the alphabet that is part of the community. We really do owe Stormy a debt of gratitude. So happy Pride Month, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back.
And we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. Now, around the world, not just here in America, voters are seeming to be turning away from your traditional political organizations, political parties. The question that some are raising is, does democracy work well without them? I mean, as as reported by... uh, Catherine Ellison in Knowable Magazine, reprinted again on BBC.com's future section. Uh, In 1796, President George Washington lambasted political parties for allowing, as he put it, cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men to subvert the power of the people. Now, that that indictment of his seems really timely today, Uh, just a few months after 147 Republican U.S. Congress members publicly challenged results of the most recent U.S. presidential election. But even long before then, many Americans shared George Washington's concern. The popularity of parties is, is at a low point, a nadir, if you will, with both the Democratic and Republican parties here in America widely condemned as not only unrepresentative, but also hijacked by elites. Indeed, right now, a steadily increasing share of U.S. voters, over 38% as of 2018, identify as unaffiliated with either party. That proportion is now larger than the share of voters identifying as either a Republican or a Democrat. In other words, those voters who say, I'm a Democrat, or those who say, I'm a Republican, each one of those is less than the 38% that say, I ain't with those guys. It seems to be an international phenomenon. In Europe, for example, traditionally powerful center-left parties are being accused of ignoring their voters, potentially contributing to a backlash that helped push the United Kingdom into Brexit. The mounting animosity towards the parties has inspired debate among political scientists. Defenders of the traditional party system contend that democracy depends on strong, organized, and trustworthy political factions. Um, Harvard University political scientist Nancy Rosenblum, who explores the challenges facing political parties today, says people in politics often try to go around parties to go directly to the people, but without the parties, we'd have chaos. Yet a small group of scholars, many of them young, say it's time to start visualizing a more open and direct democracy with less mediation by parties and professional politicians. Such proposals were seen as completely fringe until about a decade ago, says Helene Lendemore, a political scientist at Yale University. But events including the 2008 economic crisis and Donald Trump's 2016 election as president, she says, have enlarged the scope of debate. Several trends have sped the declining popularity and power of the parties in the United States. Party-run patronage schemes that rewarded supporters with government jobs have long given way to more meritocratic systems. The rise of independent political action committees has given candidates a source of campaign funding, like around $4.5 billion in the last 10 years alone, outside the party channels that once dominated access to campaign money. This has made many candidates more entrepreneurial and less beholden to the party bureaucracy. Now, again, parties also now determine their candidates through primary elections instead of with meetings of party insiders. Only 17 primaries were held in 1968, just over 50 years ago. Today, every state has a primary or caucus. 
This switch to universal primaries has shifted influence from party veterans to more extreme activists who are more likely than average voters to vote in primaries. Now, um, Ian Shapiro, a political scientist at Yale, notes in 2018, the Democratic National Committee even cut back on the influence of superdelegates, the hundreds of party VIPs, who also had votes in selecting candidates. This was to reassure voters that party officials were listening to them, the DNC's vice chair said at the time. In many parts of the United States, partisan gerrymandering has contributed to making candidates less representative of their constituents by creating safe seats for both parties. That means that the winners are, in effect, decided in the primaries that pit Democrats against Democrats and Republicans against Republicans. This phenomenon helps explain the 2018 election of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, then a 28-year-old Democratic Socialist who had never before held elected office. Ocasio-Cortez beat an establishment Democrat in a primary in which less than 12% of the voters in their district turned out. Now, not everyone agrees that political parties are weaker today than they once were. Today's extreme polarization means that much of the public is more strongly attached to their own party. And party-led voter suppression or voter mobilization efforts, in fact, make party leaders more powerful than ever. Still, many ex experts believe that political parties have suffered major losses in clout, which in turn has been a loss for democracy in general. Um, Shapiro and his Yale colleague Francis Rosenbluth, in a 2018 opinion piece, wrote, Political parties are at the core institution of democratic accountability because parties, not the individuals who support or comprise them, can offer competing visions of the public good. Voters, they argue, have neither the time nor the background to research costs and benefits of policies and weigh their personal interests against what's best for the majority in the long run. So, in other words, because we're worked to death, we don't have the time to actually do our own research. So, parties are necessary. Huh. Now, to show what can go wrong with single-issue voting that lacks party guidance, according to Shapiro and Rosenbluth, they point to California's notorious Proposition 13, a 1978 ballot initiative that sharply restricted increases in property taxes. At first, the measure seemed like a win to many voters, yet over the years, the new rule also decimated local budgets to the point where California's per-pupil school spending now ranks near the bottom of the list of 50 states. Parties serve many other important roles, including facilitating compromise, says Muslim Weirhead, a political scientist at Dartmouth University and Rosenblum's co-author. As an example, Weirhead points to the U.S. Farm Bill, which the two parties renegotiate roughly every five years. Each time they sit down, the Democrats want food support for urban people, the Republicans want support for farmers, and somehow they always come to an agreement. The alternative is favoring one side or simply passing nothing at all. Perhaps most importantly, the U.S.'s two main parties have traditionally cooperated in acknowledging their opponent's legitimacy, as Rosenblum and Weirhead write. Other nations, such as Thailand, Turkey, and Germany, have banned political parties that their governments have seen as too destabilizing for democracy. American parties' cooperation has helped keep the peace by reassuring U.S. voters that even if they lose today, they may well win tomorrow. Now, however, this fundamental rule is being broken, says Rosenblum, Moorhead, and others, with some party leaders even accusing their opponents of treason. 
The key thing going on now is that we have an explicit argument that the opposition party is illegitimate. Trump has been calling the Democrats the enemy of the people and illegitimate and saying the election is fraudulent. This is the path to violence, as there's no way to correct this with another election, says Rosenblum. Political parties throughout the world have lost considerable goodwill and influence, says Shapiro, yet he suggests that rather than ban them or further sap their power, we must strengthen them and make them more reliable. He and his colleagues advocate reforming campaign financing to eliminate the currently chaotic bidding wars for candidates' loyalties, although that goal continues to be elusive. To combat the rise in extremism, they also urge that the job of redistricting go to nonpartisan commissions instead of gerrymandering. To further reduce the risk of primaries increasing polarization, Shapiro proposes that party leaders be allowed to choose candidates if their turnout in a primary election has fallen below 75% of the turnout in the previous general election. <laughs> so, okay, Let, let's, let's, um, let's back this up for a minute. These people are saying, hey, you know what? Parties aren't to blame necessarily. We just got to make them stronger, strengthen them back up again. So, in other words, we got here with political parties being strong. We got here with political parties choosing their own candidates rather than having primaries. We got here through the exact road these people are saying we should take again. Um, I believe there's a big old uh, saying about the definition of insanity being doing the same thing, expecting different results. Yeah. Now, I mean, sure. Should we discourage gerrymandering? Absolutely. Is that going to happen with strong political parties? No. Is it going to happen with weak political parties? No. Because political parties benefit from gerrymandering. They're not going to stop it. <sighs> now, Landamore and her faction contend these ideas don't match the urgency of the current dilemma. She invites people to imagine how democracy might function with less or even zero reliance on political parties, and particularly without costly and potentially corrupting political campaigns. One possibility, she says, would be to randomly appoint groups of citizens, chosen much as today's juries are, to lead government while rotating in fixed terms through a permanent house of the people. These citizens' assemblies would be more representative than the current U.S. Congress, wrote Rutgers University philosopher Alexander Guerrero in a 2019 opinion piece, in which he advocated choosing representatives by lottery. Guerrero wrote, In the United States, 140 of the 535 people serving in Congress have a net worth over $2 million. 78% are male, 83% are white, more than 50% were previously lawyers or business people. Now, several European nations have already tried alternatives to party-driven democracy. In 2019 and through 2020, France held a citizens' convention on climate, calling on roughly 150 randomly chosen citizens to help devise socially just ways to reduce greenhouse gases. In December of 2020, the French president agreed to hold a referendum on one of the convention's suggestions, the inclusion of climate protection in the national constitution. And in 2016, the Irish parliament assembled 99 citizens to deliberate on stubborn issues, including a constitutional ban on abortion. 
A majority of the assembly proposed that the ban be struck down, after which a national referendum confirmed the result and changed the law, all accomplished without involvement of established political parties. Now, despite the limited impact of these efforts to date, Landamore says the tide of public opinion is turning. Just five years ago, colleagues mocked the notion of an open democracy at a political science conference. Landamore says, five years from now, I'm guessing we'll be completely mainstream. So what are your thoughts on that? If you have any, let me know at TMI at TMI, TMI, TMI TMI.com. That's TMI at TMI, TMI, TMI TMI.com. But I can tell you this. It's not as if the Republican Party or the Democratic Party have any decent history of representing the needs and will of the people versus the needs and will of the big muddied interests. Maybe it's time. We do away with them. You're listening to Team I with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. Yes. On WSUM 91.7 FM in Madison. Hallelujah. My Savior, man. No one person of Jesus Christ. It's your cure for the common media. Airing every Friday at 5 p.m. Central. Podcasting every Monday evening. I like it. I think he likes it. Lots of more. Oh, yes. Check out TMI, TMI, TMI.com for podcasts and all things TMI. I know Kung Fu. Show me.
we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. January 6th of this year, just by my giving you that date, you probably know the topic, because that was the day of the assault on the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C. We watched as, you know, hordes of rioters broke into the U.S. Capitol, crashing through windows, pressing up stairways, sending lawmakers and law enforcement running for their lives. No, that's not hyperbole. The flood of protesters who streamed in the Capitol that day left federal authorities with a pretty huge task, which is to find and charge those responsible. Now, the Department of Justice said that as of last Friday, a week ago, approximately 465 defendants had been arrested in connection with the attack. The government also indicated in a court filing that day that they expect to charge at least 550 people total. So there's another 85 or so they're uh, looking to do. The prosecutors have called the case unprecedented in scale, and the government said in a March court filing that the Capitol attack is likely the most complex investigation ever prosecuted by the Department of Justice. As law enforcement continues to round up alleged rioters, Here's what we uh, can tell you about those who have been arrested. So, as we mentioned, there's been approximately 465 defendants that have been arrested in connection with the riots. And reviewing court documents for 449 cases that have been unsealed, you can see that of those, at least 181 defendants were also indicted by grand juries. Now, uh, charges um, for more than 130 defendants include assault, resisting, or impeding officers or employees, including more than 40 who were charged with using a deadly or dangerous weapon or causing serious bodily injury to an officer. In total, more than 150 officers were injured in the attack, according to sources on Capitol Hill and the Capitol Police Union, as well as testimony from Metropolitan Police Chief uh, Robert Conti. Now, approximately 30 defendants have been charged with conspiracy, a charge that alleges defendants coordinated with others to commit an offense, including 16 Oath Keepers who have been indicted together in a single conspiracy case, and 15 members or affiliates of the Proud Boys who have been charged in four separate conspiracy cases. You know, they stood back and stood by in September when Trump told them to, and then on January 6th, yeah. Approximately 440 defendants were charged with entering or remaining in a restricted building or grounds. More than 40 were charged with entering the Capitol with a dangerous or deadly weapon, while around 25 were charged with theft of government property. More than 30 defendants have been charged with destruction of government property, including proceedings for three of those defendants. The government has said in their crimes amounted to terrorism, an allegation that is not itself a charge, but could influence prison sentences if they are found guilty. Now, one of the interesting findings is that at least 50 of those arrested are current or former military members. Of those, one is an active duty service member, four are current part-time troops in the Army Reserve or National Guard, and 45 previously served in the military, according to attorney statements, military service records, and court documents. At least 22 have served in the U.S. Marines. 18 have served in the Army. Two served in the Navy and two served in the Air Force. One defendant, uh, Jeffrey McKellop, was communications sergeant with the Army Special Forces, a group known colloquially as the Green Berets. 
The Army Reserve shared the following statements. They said, The U.S. Army Reserve takes all allegations of soldier or Army civilian involvement in extremist groups seriously and will address this issue in accordance with Army regulations and the Uniform Uniform Code of Military Justice to ensure due process. Extremist ideologies and activities directly oppose our values and beliefs, and those who subscribe to extremism have no place in our ranks. Yeah, well, we know that that is still a rife breeding ground for extremism, even if they want to give that official statement. Now, at least 10 of those arrested were either former police officers or were employed as law enforcement officers at the time of the riot. That's according to court documents and employment records. Prosecutors also charged at least one current firefighter and one retired firefighter. Of the five police officers employed at the time of the riot, four have since lost their jobs. An officer in North Cornwall Township, Pennsylvania, was suspended without pay after he was charged with, among other crimes, obstruction of law enforcement during civil disorder. Houston police officer Tamden Fan and Monmouth County Correctional Officer Marissa Suarez both resigned after they were arrested, and two Virginia police officers were fired after prosecutors charged them for their alleged conduct at the Capitol. Prosecutors have arrested two former officers with the New York Police Department, a Thomas Webster, who's ex- accused of lunging at a Capitol police officer with a flagpole, and Sarah Carpenter, whose arrest an NYPD spokesperson said was the culmination of the New York Police Department's close work with the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force. Nicholas Lentz, who the Florida Department of Law Enforcement said is a former officer with the North Miami Beach and Fort Pierce Police Departments, was charged after posting videos from inside the Capitol. In one video, he said, We're not here to hurt any cops, of course. I love my boys in blue, but this is overwhelming for them. Well, Nick, you were on the side that actually wound up killing an officer and injuring so many more. The FBI is still seeking the public's help to identify more than 250 people believed to have committed assaults on police officers or other violent acts on the Capitol grounds. FBI Director Christopher Wray said in March, that citizens from around the country had sent the FBI more than 270,000 digital media tips. Ray said, with their help, we've identified hundreds of suspects and opened hundreds of investigations in all but one of our 56 field offices. The government said it has issued a combined total of over 900 search warrants, and the investigation has included more than 15,000 hours of surveillance and body-worn camera footage from multiple law enforcement agencies. The government has also gathered approximately 1,600 electronic devices, the results of hundreds of searches of electronic communication providers, over 80,000 reports, and 93,000 attachments related to law enforcement interviews and other investigative steps. Now, the rioters came from at least 45 states outside of Washington, D.C. Among those arrested whose home states were known, most of them, the most were from Texas. About 45 Texans charged so far. Florida had at least 39 residents arrested. Pennsylvania and New York each had at least 37. Now, authorities have connected at least 67 alleged rioters to the extremist groups, as I mentioned, including the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, Texas Freedom Force, and the conspiracy ideology of QAnon. While 
Those arrested in the January 6th mob were mostly men. At least 53 women have also been arrested for their alleged participation. Now, here's a demographic for you. Among the 138 defendants whose ages are known, the average age is 41. The youngest known alleged rioter is 18-year-old Bruno Joseph Kua, whom prosecutors accused of assaulting an officer after he posted online, President Trump is calling us to fight. The oldest is Gary Wickersham, who, according to his attorney, is an 80-year-old Army veteran. Authorities said Wickersham walked through the Capitol during the siege and later told authorities he believed he was authorized to enter because he pays his taxes. The Senate released a report Tuesday identifying widespread security and intelligence failures that led to the deadly January 6th assault on the Capitol. In a rare bipartisan joint interview, the Democrats and Republicans leading the investigation sat down and um, for a candid conversation about what went wrong and allowed uh, a mob to storm the U.S. Capitol. On Friday, June 4th, a judge rejected the government's request to ban Capitol riot defendant Anife uh, Permi. Anthony Ginnett, an alt-right internet provocateur known as Baked Alaska, from posting videos online after they say he live-streamed himself threatening his friend. Former Vice President Mike Pence told a crowd of Republican activists in New Hampshire on Thursday night that he doesn't know whether he and former President Trump will ever see eye-to-eye about the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. President Biden has ruled out creating a presidential commission to investigate the January 6th assault on the Capitol because he believes Congress should be the one to investigate, according to White House Press Secretary uh, Jem Psaki. A bill to create a bipartisan commission was blocked by Republicans, of course, in the Senate. Now, why would they do that? Oh, you know, maybe because they might get implicated. Anyway. Nearly five months after the Capitol riot, at least 17 police officers remain out of work with injuries sustained in the attack. And of course, one is dead. So here's the deal. Uh, you know me. I am not a rah-rah police guy. I'm, I'm, I'm not happy with how the policing in America has uh, gone down of late. Um, and I believe that as an institution, it needs complete overhaul top to bottom. That said. The officers that were attempting to make sure that our elected officials weren't killed by a mob storming the Capitol building, I at least can say that they probably were doing their jobs the right way. Um, so again, please don't misread uh, my apparent affinity for law enforcement in presenting the January 6th attack as I have, believe you me, I have no patience, none for the abuse of power that law enforcement has shown across the country. And um, I just want to point out that that doesn't mean these particular officers deserved to be injured or killed by trying to keep elected officials from being murdered. The two concepts can coexist. Now, thank you for listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. Again, if you want to check out TMI, TMI, TMI.com, I uh, post podcasts of the show there and um, other goodies. And of course, you can always contact me through there. 
But I have had people contact me go, Aldous, wow, you really seem to have a clear vision, even if they don't agree with how I see things. And they want to know, how do I do that when there's just too much information being thrown at you every day? Well, the first trick is you got to stop and breathe deep. Close your eyes and let all of that stuff fall away. All that stress, all that silliness. Find a center within yourself. Remember what matters to you. Because then you can release that breath and let all that go. Once you've done that, you'll be ready to see the world for how it actually is. That is the preparation. Breathe in, breathe out, find your center. All you'll have to do at that point to see the world for how it truly is, is simply 